0: This is the Running Publix Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Bracken, do I look a little tired this morning? I don't want to say anything. But you can tell, can't you? Yeah, you wear it on your face, Kirk. You wear it hard.
1: Well, I'm in a new recording area, so maybe it's the lighting But you always look great. Thanks. I'll start. I'll tell you why. So, Olympic trials,
0: last day was yesterday. Oh, it hit you like it hit me. I already see where this is going.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I was highly anticipating the men's 1500 meter finals, and I was so excited. Women's 800. But the 1500, right. But the men's 1500, that's the one I wanted to watch all week. If I could pick one, that was it. And they had a heat delay. It was 104 degrees at like 8 p.m. still. And they pushed it back to like, I don't know. like nine. Yeah. Because the heat index was 108 and they pushed it back. Why well, did you to go to did back? Did you
0: see why they actually pulled the trigger? No, I didn't. A heptathlete passed out on the track. They pulled the trigger on the delay. Yeah, because one of the heptathletes passed out. My goodness. Well... You know, they have a formula
1: like when we go to Lake Tahoe every year for Spartan World Champs, they have a cold and water cold Mm. formula. They have the same thing for heat, it sounds like. So it's like, this is too hot. Anyways, so I knew they delayed it and I was super bummed I couldn't watch it before bed. I was like actually disappointed. And I woke up at 3.30 in the morning to pee and I was like, oh, I should check YouTube real quick to see if the races are on there. So I've been up, I was up in my bed in the dark watching the 1500 meter final at 3.30 in the morning. And I haven't gone back to bed since. I was so fired up. I watched it like three times in a row and I was like, screw it. I'm up. My adrenaline's going. So that's why I'm a little uh, sleepy today.
0: Okay. See, I stayed up. I didn't plan on it, but I did a late night workout and it was Uh one of those where I was Getting ready to put the kids to bed and I could feel my fatigue creeping in. I'd been up late in Chicago the night before and up early. And so I took a half serving of Performalate before putting the kids to bed so that I would get up and do my workout. Mm -hmm. And then I was up. (laughs) (laughs) Taking caffeine and beta alanine at 8 p.m. For someone who doesn't do caffeine, especially after noon, it got me. So I stayed out and I ended up making it through the women's 800 and I did not make it to the men's mile.
1: You didn't make it. Oh, I know you, I know you watched this morning. Uh-huh. All right. What time did you get to bed? It didn't, it air at like 1140 central time? No, it was later than that. Or maybe 1140 Pacific time, which would have been like 140 central time. Okay. Yes.
0: It was, it was at that point where I was like, dozing in and out and the the uh, announcer would get loud or a commercial would come on loud and i'd i'd wake up and i'd watch for a few minutes and then fall back asleep and mm. so i caught the eight and maybe i'm wrong maybe i slept through the 15 and woke up for the eight but i thought the 15 was last either way i saw the women's eight and i missed the men's 15. dang it such a great race these trials have been and fuego all I know
1: is, like, if you, you know, you OCR trail running folks who don't really get into track or don't have a track background are heavily missing out if you did not watch the trials. And good for you, on YouTube, you can basically look up all the heats and all the finals of all the endurance events. And it was like, and it's going to lead to our topic today, but, like, it was strategic racing. Some of them went for it from the gun. There were great finishes I mean, if you're cross-training, I don't know. I'm going to go back and rewatch all of it just to keep me busy this next week or two. It's
0: amazing. Yeah, it really, really was. It's just, I think it was, I mean, we probably always say this because every four years it feels fresh and new, but it mm-hmm. might have been the most competitive trials I've watched because there weren't the big dogs. Like it used to be, you knew Rupp was on the 5K, 10K team. Boom. Mm-hmm. Yet, had who was kind of a... The one guy. But he's, there's questions about his fitness. He was kind of like Brazier where he's the reigning, he's actually the reigning Olympic champion in the 1500, but he hasn't run much fast since then and just started around into shape lately. So there's questions. Uh, It used to be that we had metal favorites at each event and they were going through and it was a race for the third spot. Every spot was open this year. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of collegiates made it through, which was super awesome to see. Yeah. And a lot of collegians were that didn't make it were in the mix pushing. Mm-hmm. It was, I think, the craziest part for me was watching these people all year. So, like Robert Brandt from Georgetown, sure. uh, Cooper Teer, these guys raced. At Cole Hawker, raced a ton. There were some women in the 5K, 10K who I didn't know their name, but I watched that uniform and that stride at conference, in, back in cross country, indoor, outdoor, mm-hmm. at conference uh, nationals, nationals running all the rounds of 5K and 10K. And now they're back a week later running rounds at the Olympic trials. And they weren't just there to take part. They went after it. Yes, When the pace lagged, they were the ones that went to the front and were the sacrificial lambs like, hey, I may not win, but I'm going for it.
1: Some call that inexperience.
0: Some call that cojones. But
1: most of those collegiates needed, they hadn't hit the Olympic standard, so they needed the pace to stay honest.
0: Yeah, but it seems like it used to be if you got there out of college, you were happy to be there. This new era, they believe they belong. They think it's like, it's my time now, and they really went for it. I was impressed. Mm -hmm. What was... uh? What would you say the most
1: impressive on the endurance side of things, the most impressive standout performance from the 800 meters on up?
0: I think it's tied and it's both on the female side. Yep, it's definitely on the female side without question. Nothing yeah, Mu, uh, her 800, 156, winning by a lot. So mm-hmm. I think it's the second fastest American time ever run. I think it was yep. the, America, the Olympic Olympics. trials record.
1: It is the record,
0: yeah. But there's one more more impressive, I think. The I think 10K. that was my
1: runner-up, the 10K. Unbelievable.
0: Emily Sisson in the 10K. She, there, There's two terms the track announcers love to say. They love to say winding it up. Oh, they're starting to wind it up. And that mm-hmm. usually means the kick's approaching and they're starting to ramp up for a big final uh, finish. But then they say tightening the screws. Oh, mm-hmm. she's starting to tighten the screws. And that's what Emily did. From lap like four on, she tightened the screws every single lap and just ground the pace down and down and down. And then she broke everyone and left. It was Emily, amazing. Performance,
1: Emily Sisson. It was just like one of the, like, like that's a woman you got to watch out for. She out-strategized and out everybody in that field, and that was a deep field in 96-degree 90, heat.
0: Yeah, I think at the time it was like 85 and humid because they ended up moving the 10K to the early morning, but it was still humid. But I don't know if you recall back in Atlanta in the Olympic trials, she DNF'd, mm, a disappointing dnf ran with the league group for a while, experienced some issues and dropped out. Her first DNF, I think of her life and devastated her, like never been lower. And she ran this Olympic trials 10k like it was the morning after dropping out of the Olympics. Like she had just sent, just spent nine months or or longer just thinking about that one failure over and over in every single workout, and then she just ran on that. She kept that receipt, as you would say. Oh, yeah, it it was. It, you were watching someone on a mission.
1: All this babble is to tell you that if you haven't kept up with it or didn't get to watch it live, go. Watch it if you if you're like lacking inspiration right now. If you watch this and are not inspired, most every single one of these races, something wrong with you. Like start with the prelims, then go to the semis, then go to the finals of all the events. Follow
0: the storylines. Amazing, amazing. Mm-hmm. There was another piece that impressed me, and uh, that was the pre- the performance of the. The previous generation's college studs, Grant Fisher, one of them. Grant Fisher in particular really impressed me because Grant runs like a local legend. Yeah. The other people in the field run like Kenyans and Ethiopians. You know, you have a couple transplanted citizenship athletes, but you have these long, lanky, bouncy guys who look like they're, only their toes are ever touching the ground. And then mm-hmm. he sits and he kind of runs like one of us. He has great compact form. So
1: Woody Kincaid.
0: Yeah, Woody Kincaid as well. They run like humans. They run like not humans. like not like demigods. And at one point they they sat Grant sat in second place the entire 5K, 10K, right? He's just sitting up there sitting, 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 waiting for the moves to be made. The 5K in particular. And Robert Brandt led for a while. Some other people led, but then the uh the African train came up in. And they all moved up to the front and they just looked glorious. And I couldn't help but think if you were Grant or Woody, it would almost feel like this is inevitability. Right. What was I even thinking out here? Look at these. Because they they just effortlessly moved up and started. Like Chalimo just started surging when someone clipped him. He looked back, he yelled at them, and then dropped like a 62-second lap. It was just so effortless that I thought it would be demoralizing to run behind them. To limo. to limo got a little diva out there on the track yeah real diva uh-huh i know who
1: those of you haven't watched any of this don't know what we're talking about but hopefully it p- piques your interest
0: continue but anyways grant fisher and woody just sat there and i i thought if i were them it would be really demoralizing to watch how easy those four people that just cruised up five people that cruised ahead of me are making this look mm-hmm. and they just hung on and hung on and then both woody and grant kicked all the way up and made the team, but it, it, it spoke to the confidence they had in their fitness and their experience level to not get caught up by how good the people around them looked because they looked really good.
1: Mm-hmm. They looked great.
0: Yeah. You got to think they make pretty good training partners. Those oh, two. Man. Are... You uh-huh. know what the interesting thing was? Mm. Woody talked after the 10 K cause he has one of the most dangerous in race kicks. He said, Grant gets me. He gets the better of me. I'm all the time in training. He's always the one out kicking me in training and come on. Yeah, that sounds like Grant's like the workhorse in training.
1: Well, Grant did that in the 5K. He didn't do it in the 10K, but Grant kicked him in the 5 yeah. So, sweet. Okay, enough trials talk. Amazing. Sh- should we just
0: jump right in? To what? To the topic of the day? Or do yeah, we, have we probably
1: should. We okay. probably should. We probably should dive into it.
0: Well, we bring this up for two reasons. One, because we are just massive fans of running. And the Olympic trials are the most exciting time of the year for... Most nations. The Olympics is awesome, but it's the buildup to get there that's actually tougher a lot of times
1: mm, okay. and more
0: exciting. So we loved it. But the second is that race tactics and mentality were on full display throughout the weekend. and you saw everything. You saw from from Emily Sisson going out and just dropping the hammer one mile into a six mile race, just mm-hmm. going after it and saying, "I'm going now." Stick with me if you dare, but this is what it's going to take. And then you saw people just sit, 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 and kick their way through. And some people gun out early. You basically saw every strategy you could possibly see. And what jumped out at us was the people that did well were the people not just physically ready, but mentally ready and adaptable to the different styles of races.
1: Oh, I don't even know. I would say maybe in half the races, the most physically capable Person one, but I would say in half the races, the most strategically sound and approach the race the right way. Person one, and you have other layers to this, which is okay. You have Hobbs Kessler,
0: who Mm -hmm. had never run
1: rounds in his life, goes out and wins his quarterfinal and then gets dropped in the semifinal and doesn't make finals. um, Strategizing the sum total of the effort that's about to happen, and this and this goes on you know, it can be translated to the trail and OCR, which we're going to do for you today, but just strategy and approaching and training for the demands of the race strategy Uh, more than just, you know, 90% of the battle is building your engine and your fitness. And the other 10%, which really matters is getting ready for what's actually going to happen within the race. So you can
0: have your best performance. it was fun to watch this week. It was a lot of fun. And it highlighted the fact that Most of the people who are contenders can run the time needed to win in most races. Let's take the women's 5K, for example. It was one not under 15.
1: Mm -mm.
0: So almost every woman there, top 10, has broke 15 multiple times. They could all run 1530, but most of them got dropped running 1530. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, it, it highlights that 1530 is not, always 1530. It's how you run 1530 in a 5k for mm-hmm. those women. Where whether, I mean, going out in a 420 mile or going out in a 520 or going out dead center at like 440, those are three totally different races, even if you wind up at the same point. And, and it takes three different strategies and training styles to be able to handle all three races.
1: Yeah. I think the the most prime example of this in the trial or in the, yeah, in the trials is Cole Hawker. Cole Hawker, from Oregon the Oregon freshman he's 19 years old goes out and 29. wins oh he's 20 sorry goes out and wins the the US Olympic trials final on the 1500 meters yet didn't run the Olympic qualifying standard there were six guys in the heat who had all run under 335 that should on paper have beat him based on that alone yet he goes out still doesn't run the Olympic qualifying standard misses it by like a quarter of a second and wins the race Beating people that have all run faster than him this season. That's what we got outlined today. And I really do hope he gets
0: in, by the way. I don't know the process, but there's hope. So when we talked about the Olympic trials qualifying, there are there is another way. You either get selected by your committee and you get to go if you have it or don't have it. But world ranking also matters. So there's an Australian, for example, who didn't go, who went top. I forgot what it was. Didn't go top three, but has been dominant all year. Didn't have the standard, but because he's ranked so high, he'd run so many international five K's and done well that he has the ability to get on based on world ranking. Mm, so okay. there's that component too. So Cole will go. You sure? Yeah. I sure hope so. Cause he's a guy who could stick his nose when it counts and, and actually do some damage. I want to say he ran 38 seconds for his last 300 meters. And he in like 52 9 or something, 52 7 in a, 1,500 meters. Yeah. And that's the type <laughs> of stuff that's needed to medal. So, can he make it through the rounds? I don't know. But if he makes it to 100 meters to go, he can race anyone. Yeah.
1: Anyways, that'll, that'll outline. And, and that specifically was exactly what we're talking about. A guy who has six guys in front of him who've run faster throughout the year, yet he beat all of them. Yeah. And, and crossed the finish line first.
0: Yeah, and we see this a lot where world record holders don't win championship medals. Right. And it's because the non-adaptability of their racing style. The, the people who generally set world records in distance events are the ones who can maintain the highest possible work rate the longest. Mm-hmm but oftentimes it's built at the expense of having a devastating kick or being able to go out really hard and then slow down or start slow and speed up the the change of gears all the other little nonsense that trickles into championship races removes the ability to actually run well it's like match they don't have as many matches to burn because their their one match burns so well it just right. burns so hot that they never have to develop their other matches but if they ever accidentally blow that one out, they can't relight another one. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and if we're going to talk uh, outside
1: of track and field, if we're going to talk trail racing or OCR, I would argue that uh, the strategist uh, has to come out even more so um, mm-hmm. in some of these races. One, because a lot of times they're longer and two, there's so many variables that go into it, that strategy starts to matter. And so This topic's worth chatting out for sure. And it certainly is top of mind because every single race this week, that thought crossed my
0: mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where do you want to start with this conversation, Bracken? Well, I want to start with saying that we spend a lot of our time talking about training the engine. Training the chemicals in the body. Like the heart. The blood, the oxygen, doing workouts at a certain pace or a certain exertion level and holding steady there and doing what you can to recover shortly, do what you can recover shortly, that style of training. And that's how you build the engine. Mm-hmm. But the athlete is the engine plus the mind. And these, what we want to talk about today is tactical training, yep. training for different styles of race, because once you put in a big block of training or several years of training, which people that listen to this podcast are doing, you see people starting to worry about the little minutia of training. That means they've done a lot of the big stuff. Now you get yourself into racing rather than competing. And there's a difference. If People go out there and they all compete and you run as hard as you can the whole time. But once you start racing, now result matters more than effort. Correct. Where like red line the whole time isn't the case. You Generally, you're a sacrificial lamb in a big race if you go lead and run hard the whole time. So these are the workouts and the strategies we're going to talk about today are about getting yourself ready to use your engine. Any different style of race that gets either thrust upon you or that you decide to put upon someone else.
1: Yeah, and I do think we glorify consistency. We glorify Things like threshold training and we glorify repeatable workouts and not blowing up necessarily in interval sessions and going out and knowing your body, we say in quotes. Um, But we're we're talking like often like knowing your body in a controlled environment. Okay, I'm going to go run repeats on the track without any external factors, or I'm going to go run my hill loop and do my time trial course without any external factors or any other racers or jockeying or obstacles along the way. And the repeatable typical week in and week out workouts alone don't really prepare you fully for what's coming your way. So, so the fundamentals are still the same, but sprinkling in race demands is kind of what we're talking about more than anything, trying to yeah. simulate what is actually going to be thrown at you. And we've touched on brief aspects of that, like, Let's do a workout where you go out hot for your first rep and then settle in or you know vice versa or anything like that, but those are the nuances that you know I, I mean how many times in in OCR anyway specifically um, have we have we talked about the guy that one ran the smartest race? Well, what does that mean? He ran
0: the smartest race what does what does that mean That's what we need to outline today yeah so how many styles of races? do you think there really are like standard styles, three or four? Probably break it down to three, maybe four. Yeah. So the, the obvious ones are the, it's just hot from the start. Gun goes off either the best person there or one of the best people decides I'm going to make this an honest race from the start. And you better hook up now because we're not coming back and they just go out hard and you're forced to race from the start all the way through to the finish. Mm -hmm. And that's the one that sets a lot of championship records these days. And it starts out relatively honest and maybe even builds up a little bit, but it's the one that fitness just trumps all. You got to be tough and you got to be fit and you just hang on and hang on and hang on. The other end of the spectrum is the one where it just starts slow and it stays slow until towards the end, the moves start getting thrown. And it's just, that's the one where they talk about winding it up. Once you get towards the end, every step gets faster than the step before it. You don't see that one in OCR very often, but it does exist. No, you don't. You don't. It, it exists where you have the cleanest courses, track True. roads, where there aren't bottlenecks. <laughs> there aren't terrain that jump up in front of you. It's the one where everyone's fit. Everyone knows they're about the same fitness level, and it's too dangerous to make moves early. So everyone relies on how fast can we sprint the finish. Right. Then you have the, uh, the cut down race. Or somewhere between the first third and halfway, someone starts ramping it up, tightening the screws, like what Emily Sisson did. She just started tightening the screws down. So you've got to be able to get out, relax, and then just start cutting down, cutting down, cutting down. And then the fourth, the final one that's not as normally used is where someone gets out obnoxiously hard. In order to try to break everyone. And then eventually the pace comes back down. But being able to absorb a crazy fast start, crazy fast finish, or steady slash steady cut down. I would say the trials
1: outlined one more. And again, you don't see this much in trailer OCR, but you do once in a while. And that's the multiple surges to pumping the brakes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll see it, which would be terrible, but you'll see a 60 second lap followed by a 68 second lap, which maybe doesn't sound like much to you, but. It's surge. Oh, they're coming with me. Pump the brakes. Surge coming with me. Pump the brakes. It's kind of wild. Or you'll see guys get to the front and then pump the brakes on purpose to slow the whole group down. So anyways, you see that strategy too. It's like, actually.
0: Yeah. And where do we see that the most? I would say amongst African racers. Dude, Africans love to do that throw surge. And then, and you talk about 68 to 60, 68 to 60. It's not like, well, it's eight seconds. Who cares? Well, it's the difference between four thirty two per mile and four flat per mile. <laughs> That's massive difference demands on your body. So yeah, that the African racers love to do that. They'll look around, not like what's going on. Maybe they're starting to get tripped up. But we saw it with Chalimo and, uh, I don't think Hassan Mead did it. Um, Chalimo definitely did it. And, mm. um, I know I know what instance you're talking about. I can't think of the athlete it's either. The, the steeplechaser. I'm blinking on his name. He's with the world-class athletic program out of Colorado. Uh, mm-hmm. Searched up a couple times. They get there. Suddenly, the race would start to string out, and then it'd be clumped again, and then string out, and that takes its toll on people, too. So, yeah, I guess I guess we could have five strategies of races that are out there, and the same person is not necessarily good at them all, but the best people win no matter what happens. So, let's talk about what you do in training to be prepared physically and mentally for those styles of races? Well, I think the first and foremost, I believe at this point, maybe
1: we're split between OCR listeners and then actual regular runners. But I think we need to address because you see it so common in OCR and you see it in the trails and on the track is the going out of the gun, going out of the gates way harder than you're going to sustain the rest of the race. So I think we should break that one down first because we just see it all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. How about we start there? Yeah, you're right. It's probably the most common amongst unseasoned athletes is they tend to go out way too fast. And it's common in the trails where position matters because of single track and technical terrain. Correct. The only way to absorb that outside of having the biggest engine in the field is to practice going out really hard in training. Correct. That's it. And it sucks. We should outline a couple of styles of that. Well, I started doing this. I called them my Yatsko workouts. John Yatsko was so fast at the time in OCR. He's one of the fastest trail runners. And Max King was coming to the Warrior Dash World Championship. So we knew that it was going to be hot from the gun. And so I'd start going to the tracker, the cross-country course. And my brother was living in town at the time. And we'd say, let's do a classic workout. We we're going to go eight by thousand. The first rep was 95% effort. It was almost like a time trial. Mm-hmm. And then I'd get into the workout. So I'd go crazy hard for the first one. Unsustainable. Give myself short rest and now start clicking into the workout. And the first rep or two after that sucks. Miserable. Yeah. You teach yourself to ignore the warning signs and start trying to click into a pace and allow your, your, like, your pressure levels to start dropping, dropping, dropping while you're still working. So that was one I do. I did 8 by 1,000, but it was really 1 by 1,000 time trial, 7 by 1,000 with short rest. And why don't you give me an example in time difference so people understand maybe what that would look like between your first rep and then your next seven? I was trying to run 3.10 per 1,000 for for all of them, between 3 and 3.10. I didn't want to be slower than 3.10, didn't want to be faster. Well, I, I would have accepted faster than three minutes, but I knew it wasn't acceptable. And I'd run like 2.54 253 for the first thousand say like 10 seconds ish or more faster yeah closer to 15 or so yeah or okay. another workout I did, I did um three by mile but i started with a one mile time trial not all out time trial but i think i ran like four thirty nine or 440 rest two minutes maybe three and then tried to run five tens for the next three
1: yeah. There's another, uh, style that I really enjoy. We did a bit of this in college. We did both ends and we'll, we'll talk about training for the fast finish and kicking home too later. But, um, the style where you, you go out hard in the middle of a rep mm. and then settle in. So for example, if you're going to do mile repeats, you go through the quarter, let's say for us, let's just say you go through the quarter in 68 to 70, and then you try to settle back into like your five, 510 pace. So you're going out like you're only running a quarter, but then you hang on for the duration of the rep. Give yourself a little more recovery in between each rep. But You're actually breaking a single rep up into segments and allowing yourself to go out hard and then settle in, as we call it. But settle in with a very purposeful pace. Not a settle in is like, I'm already dying home. So starting the rep hot, but then continuing through, that's also a really nice strategy. Forces you to work when you know you've gone out over your head. And, it, and even yeah. if anything else getting comfortable with that feeling is as important as whatever physiological benefits that could, that's going to have, if any, than if you were to just do a traditional workout. But if you can recognize the feeling, then you can embrace it and use it in a race. So I like that one too.
0: Yeah. And, and you highlighted the key, which is settling in mentally while physically working hard. Yes. Where like you don't go from fifth gear down to second gear, you go from fifth to fourth and you slowly try to bring that, your breathing and heart rate down to meet your effort level without panicking. Because in a race, you can't go out hot and then say, oh, I've hit my limit. I got to drop back to eight minute pace for a little bit and let it go. It's like, no, I've got to drop back 10 seconds per mile and not let everyone around me know I'm dying. And slowly recover while still covering ground. Yeah. And another example of that would
1: be Um, you know, I love this like three by three by 400 or four by four by 400 workout where they're broken into sets of three or four with bigger breaks in between the sets. And that first effort in each set is like not all out, of course, but like just a notch below that. And so you go out way too hot in your first of four reps in that set. And then you kind of hang on for the next three, get a big break, do that same thing all over again, go out way too hot in the first rep and then settle in for the next three and you repeat that cycle. And that one really kind of trains you well, well too.
0: Yeah. That's kind of it for going out hot. I think other than if you wanted a pure OCR or, or trail example, we used to do one, you and I way back at our beginning, we would do our fast start dog loop. Mm-hmm. Fast start, fast finish, but yeah. 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 We had fast start, we had fast finish and then we had fast start, fast finish dog loop, but the dog loops, the one where you're running back and forth, alternating runs and hard carries. It's just an OCR simulator, but we used to start with a mile or a two mile, essentially time trial into a 40 minute dog loop, where you had to blow yourself out and then do race specific work after you've already gone extremely anaerobic. Yeah. Yeah. I like those style of workouts. You also used to prescribe
1: the fast start, fast finish. It'd be like you would do 800 meter repeats, but... You'd you'd end cap it or bookend it with a 400 meters all out, go into like your 800 meter repeats for six reps, and then end with a 400 meters all out. And those ones always, man, they really just like up the the fitness just a
0: notch. It always moved the dial a little bit. So I liked that style. It did. And I liked using the 400 starter for that because it's long enough that it gets you feeling trashed if you truly run it all out. That last yep. 150 meters, your your hamstrings are burning and your lungs are burning your arms even feel like you're going lactate there yep. but it's not damaging you can go back and do your workout but because you've used so much in your legs already you have the fatigue level of having done something longer and slower yep yeah i like that one a lot i haven't done that one in a long time and i probably should bring her back yeah me
1: either but i did like it. i remember dreading it enough when i dread something it usually means it's uh
0: purposeful and it works so yes you want to build into the the surging style now I do. Okay. So this is the style of race where you're running comfortable and someone gets a little antsy and surges up for a bit and either burns out or decides, ah, I'm going to come back to earth or they're tactically throwing surges. So throughout the race, it's constant little matches are being burned. And you'll see that there are two styles of covering that. And the first is you follow all of them. And the second is you get there, but smoothly. In each Mm -hmm. race, you see someone surge and someone buys in right away and they go, this is the point I need to cover. And they get right on their shoulder and go. And the rest of the group kind of drifts back up. They cover the ground over the course of 300 meters rather than 30 meters. But either way, you have to respond to the move. And these are the workouts that allow you to constantly spike yourself without actually burning matches. Yeah, and you'll see it, you
1: know, track aside, you'll see it in – in OCR or trail racing, the, the technique where if you're, you turn a corner and you're out of sight yes. and you surge on purpose to put more of a gap so your competition doesn't know that's happening, that goes through my mind every single OCR race that's tight. I round a corner and know they don't have visibility on me, I surge. It might only be for five seconds, but suddenly you've created five seconds more of a gap over a mile stretch of terrain, and that just became disconnected. You'll see, um, you'll see it on carries you'll see a heavy carry surge where somebody comes and they decide that they're going to burn one of their matches there. How to you know, react to those situations or create them yourself. Train yourself so that you're the one putting the moves on that make the difference. So, so all those are worth kind of dissecting too.
0: I saw this for the first time. I truly saw it my senior year of college when I went out for cross country the first time. And I don't know if you remember the name, Aaron Kehoe? He came yeah. out for cross country with me for the first time. We both ran it just that our senior year of cross.
1: He had a uh he had an older brother, Riley Kehoe, I believe.
0: Uh not actually related, but went to the same college. Okay, because he was my heir at Whitewater. Different. Okay. That's how I knew Kehoe. That's it. Okay. So Aaron was a stud in high school. They set the four by eight state record, went to, you know, ran in the fifteens in cross. Uh, then he went, goes to college. He That year, he ran, won the indoor nationals for the 800. He'd also run 411 or under like three consecutive days. He did it at a meet. He did it at a next last chance meet to try to qualify for nationals. He went like 410, 411, and then he split 409 the next day on our DMR. I, wow. Real solid runner. So he came out for cross, and he's put in 100-mile weeks all summer. He had run a five-mile road race averaging like 440 pace or something. He was fit, and he comes out and got waxed by one of our alumni who came out at the alumni cross-country meet, which is our our college tryout meet for the cross-country team. This guy named Ryan Meissen, who was a stud at Whitewater back in the day, and now he was in his mid to late 30s, and he waxed Keo, Which seems... Ancient when you're that age in college. Oh yeah. Not doing speed work anymore. He showed up, did his warm up lab, pushing his kids in his stroller, got out there and took it to Aaron. And he did that exact thing. Every time they crested a hill, turned a corner, anything broke the rhythm or broke the line of sight, he put in three to five hard strides and he just inched away. In. And suddenly before Aaron realized it, he was broken and out of sight and didn't even know what happened to him. And that cemented in my mind right there. Like that's how you beat someone better than you is you have to sneakily drop them without them knowing they're being dropped. That's what
1: being tenured will do. That's strategy. Yeah. Yeah, It was
0: old man strategy and strength against the young buck who didn't know what he didn't know. But so Mm -hmm. this workout, you talk about your three by four by 400 or four by three by 400, whatever you like to do. This is the perfect time for that one in my eyes. So three by four by 400, the third rep of every set, you run fast. So say you're going 80, 80, 70, 80, 80, Mm -hmm. 80, 80, 70, 80, something like that, where you drop significantly faster and you still have to run another rep after that. That's the first way I like to start practicing this. Mm -hmm. Um, Talking, do you want to stay on just the running side of things? No, no, I want to talk at all.
1: Okay. Another another workout, again, if we're going to keep that flowing, is is you're going to notice like a a parallel here between – A lot of these but it's it's simple let's say um you're going to run 800 meter reps well you run your first quarter mile your first 400 meters at pace you run that like dead zone middle 200 meters much 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 faster than pace and then you settle back into pace for the last 200 meters totaling 800 meters but it's a purposeful surge done within a rep it's all continuous um We used to do, this is more of a finisher workout, but in college, we did 1,100 meter repeats. Mm -hmm. Uh, And 1,100, which seems arbitrary, but we did uh, 800 meters on pace. And we all came, your number's 220. You're going to come through in 220, which for us at that fitness was very reasonable. And then you're kicking home as if you were racing the last 300 meters um, to train us to kick out from that far. And all we timed was the 300 meters. When you were done, you, what was on paper was only your 300 meters granted that you're going to hit your 220 to the 800. So little things like that, like speed play along the way, make a big difference. And again, like I said it already once, but what this comes down to more than anything is your body's awareness of that feeling and not panicking or not giving in trusting. We always talk about this all the time, Bracken with like, if you're well-trained in transition work on OCR you get off of a carry or a tough obstacle and you feel like you're going to blow up, but you run hard anyway because you trust your fitness because you felt it before and you know you can sustain it without blowing up. It's sort of the same thing with all of these styles. Is like As long as you felt it a few times before, then at least
0: you can sit in it better. And so that's what it's about. Yeah, that's exactly it. We did one in college that I really disliked but liked at the same time. It was basically interval work we'd have we we would do six and then build up to 10 by thousand over the course of a couple of weeks in fall but our coach would have a whistle and at some point during the rep he was going to blow it and you were going to move from running your 10k pace down to 3k pace and it was oh. effort-based but you didn't know long, how long he was going to go for before he blew it again it was usually somewhere between 10 and 30 seconds But that's a big difference. 10 and 30 seconds in the middle of running the eight by thousand workout. Each rep had a surge somewhere in it, but you didn't know when it was going to be. So the first rep, almost every time you get to the 500 meter mark, he'd blow the whistle and then 10 seconds later, blow it again. And you'd settle back into your actual cross country race pace and finish. But sometimes he'd blow it 30 meters from the end. and You had to surge all the way through. And sometimes he'd blow it 10 steps into the rep. Ah. And sometimes it would be a 10 seconds. Sometimes you'd be waiting like, what is this? I got to hold this 3K effort. But at first you're holding nice and clean and then it starts to become taxing and you're checking your watch like, damn, <laughs> you got to blow that whistle coach. And and sometimes he'd make you hold it for two, 300 meters and then he'd finally blow it. But it was a great way to, it was like a real race surge where you didn't know how long it was going to last for. You only knew that no matter how long it lasts for, I'm holding on. And then I'm gonna really, really suck wind and try to recover right after. I like that a lot. And you could do that, which you could set a random interval beeper on your watch or on an app. You probably have to find an app for it. You have to have somebody else set it for you without you knowing and then and then go into it. We also had our cone intervals. It was actually a fartlick. We'd, it was more like a fartlek, but we'd run a, a threshold run and one cone section was easy and one cone section was hard. And that sure. was our only instruction. So it was like a, a big square in this grass field we had. And there was a short like 40 meter section that with two cones in it. And that was the easy section. And then there was like a 150 meter section that was hard and then probably 500 meters with the other. So it was like tempo, hard, tempo, 30 meters rest. And we would just go but he didn't tell us how long the, the fartlek session was going to be. You just knew you have to stay on the hards and the, t- and the tempo and the easy until the workout was done. Okay. And then when you can set up yourself, you could set up cones. And whenever I hit this telephone pole, I'm surging until the end of the block and then I'm looping back around. But those mid-set surges, that's staying power workout.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and if we're talking um, OCR specifically, then I like to look at, you know, there's versions of compromise running, which I think can apply to this scenario. But a lot of like the carry in or carry out workouts where um, I, I don't know. I would say that our sport is a sport of surges. You see, more, you see more back and forth in our sport than you would see in a typical road race for sure. Maybe most track races, I would say, but you see a lot of shifts in positioning. Um, whether it's because of skill set or strategic pushing or dialing back or anything like that, but, um, the, you know, hard into and hard out of carries, just a more repeatable version than let's say the hard mile into a dog loop and then exit with a hard mile, but more like, uh, you know, hard 400 meters run into a hard 200 meter carry back into a hard 400 meter run, things like that transitioning into and out of quickly, um, Make a big difference because everybody's tendency in general, I would say, especially if you're new to the sport, is to like, gather yourself after you do something taxing and then try to work your way back up into pace. And then suddenly somebody more tenured has gapped you by 10 seconds and it's tough to make that time up. So um, workout styles like that, you know, is that working your engine or your system or your chemicals or physiologically more than if you just went out and actually ran 800 meter repeats or 1000 meter repeats? Maybe not, but it's
0: getting you ready for the race demands and so that's why that's that one's important too. I like that style. I agree. And and you're right. I think OCR has more matches burnt and more surges than any other sport. But I think the other place where this surging ability really plays off is trail running. And specifically uphill work. And so one of my favorite ways to do surge workouts are on my, my hill rep days. Okay. Where, I mean, my two biggest styles on one is cresting. So let's say you have a quarter mile hill, your last 50 meters of the hill, you're changing gears and attacking the hill, cresting it. And only after you've crested for another 50 meters of fast running, do you settle back into your sustainability. And the other kind is if you have a really long hill to pick out like a middle surge and a top surge. You're Mm -hmm. working, you surge a 20-meter section of the hill, get back to your work, and then surge to the top. And those are the things that crack people during races. Uphill surging is costly, but it might be the single most effective surge type of all running, I believe.
1: Well, and, uh, and a surge uphill. Mentally, a lot of times when you're trailing somebody, you think they are closer than they are. They're only 20 meters ahead. That's, what is that, three seconds on flat terrain? Well, now it's 15 seconds because you're going uphill slowly. And those surges, suddenly somebody thinks they're still in the game behind you without even realizing it. By the time you crest that hill and start that descent, now you're 150 meters ahead of them and there's no turning back. And so like that uphill surge is deceivingly impactful because the person behind that person who's surging has a false sense of security and you can't always do something about it because you're working as hard as you
0: can, but uh, very, very effective for sure. This skill pairs well with downhill because if you've really worked your ability to run fast downhill while lowering your heart rate and recovering, you can actually dip into your tank a little bit uphill knowing I can't surge any more than he can, but I trust my downhill to repair me. And so mm-hmm. you can make two surges up this hill And then suddenly you're cresting the top and he's not as close to you as he thought he was and you're paying for it, but he's panicking, but you're rejuvenating yourself and getting your heart rate back down the hill because you've spent your time working on those downhills. Like we talked about in the how to run downhills episode so that Mm -hmm. these, a lot of these skills have to chain together. You can't just decide to surge. If you don't have your engine and you can't just surge an uphill, if you can't run efficiently downhill. But once you have one, it kind of unlocks that door to do the other. It's a good
1: point with strategy, actually, especially knowing the course and the elevation profiles. If you feel like you have um, that arrow in your quiver uh, of being a decent descender, like surging the last few minutes of an uphill when you know you're going to crest the ascent and you know that you can still run effective while suffering and then recover on a subsequent descent, Um I mean, that comes right down. That is race strategy. And that's, yeah. you know, again, somebody finally, you know, hits the ascent 20 seconds behind you. Well, 20 seconds going downhill looks a lot bigger than 20 seconds going uphill. And then if you've already mentally defeated that person, then now your eyes are on the person in front of you and you can leave that sucker, you know, behind. So and the other thing I wanted to talk about with, with OCR specifically is, you know it's such a game of back and forth or cat and mouse because even if everybody's fitness is is equal, um, it takes you three seconds longer to do Z wall or you get hung up on the cargo net flipping down and suddenly the gaps are there. So like in the sport of OCR, I would argue that surging is probably as or more important to staying in contact than it is or creating a gap than any other sport, even the tactical track races we just watched because, because surging, like suddenly you're just behind or you're yeah. just ahead and suddenly, and you realize I just got an advantage and I didn't even intend to, or I'm at a deficit and I didn't even intend to. It's like, I wasn't trying as hard. I just wasn't as efficient going through this skill. And so the surging, like preparing yourself to surge, um, for that scenario alone is super important. And what could that look like? That could look like going out for your threshold or your tempo run of six miles and choosing to put in, like, I'm gonna go run 545 pace today, and that's what I want to run. But every three minutes I'm going to try to ratchet down quickly to five fifteen pace and for just maybe a hundred meters and then settle back into five forty five. Like things like that, um, I just see paying off big time on on course
0: because of that reason. Yeah. It's almost like cardiovascular durability where there's some people that can handle a really high level, but if they spike, they're done. And it's being able to handle little blips on your on your radar without it tipping you over. And that's, mm-hmm. you're right. That's really important. I messed around with 400 meter hurdles for a little bit in college at the end of one year. I don't know if you know this, Kirk. Seriously messed around? Like maybe I'll run this? I was at practice one day and there was, there was a hurdler who was working on it and they had some hurdles set up and we had just finished our strides and to mess with my coach, I pretended like I was doing a stride, not knowing the hurdles were right in front of me. Cause you see it all the time on the track. People run into a hurdle and have a terrible crash at practice. Cause you got hurdlers like hurtling both ways down the lanes. It's a nightmare sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hurdled it at the last second. He was like, oh, 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 and then I came back and I thought he was going to chew me out. He goes, let me see you do that again. Uh-oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, what do we get into here? And two weeks later, I was running the 400 meter hurdles at a race, trying to hit a qualifying time for nationals. Oh, I didn't know you actually raced it. Yeah, I ran three 400 meter hurdle races. Did they suck as much as I imagined them to? The last 60 meters of the 400 hurdles feels like the last... 120, 200 meters of an 800. It's the exact same race. It's just comp- all the pain of the last 200 of the eight is compacted in the last like 60 to 80 of the 400 hurdles because you're trying to jump at your most fatigued. But I-, I went like 58, 57, 56, and then I ran another 56, and I didn't improve. So I, I never ended up getting below like 56 seconds or something like that. Maybe maybe it was. Maybe it was 54. I don't remember. Whatever it was, I didn't hit the national qualifying time. What did it take to qualify? Like 52? I thought it was like 52.9. Or maybe, no, no. maybe it was like 53.9. I ran like 54.6. I don't know what it was. I can't verify any of those times. But what I remember is that the first thing we got drilled into us was the only way to attack the hurdle is to lengthen your stride going in. Because in order to not chop your steps, you have to try to lengthen your stride. And by lengthening it, you actually just maintain your stride. Sure. And then later on, I tried a steeplechase as a bet against someone and the steeplechase coach said the same thing. Like the only way to avoid chopping your steps is to try to step doubly long. And that'll like build up a gap. So when your mind shortens your steps, you really just shorten back down to what you should be running anyways. So you have right. to intentionally stride out in order to not slow down going into the barriers. And I feel like that's OCR in a nutshell. And that's trail running in a nutshell. When you come down a descent and there's a rocky section or a creek that you're going to have to leap or something, everyone goes pitter, patter, pitter, patter, pitter, patter, and they break and then they jump. Where in OCR, like, you see people slow, 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 slow into things. And so it's actually accelerating into an obstacle just to avoid decelerating. And those are tiny little spikes that once you get good at them, don't cost you anything and gain you those seconds. Yeah, but if you're
1: doing it. In a race for the first time without practicing it, you're going to slowly
0: have that piano come on your back. and Yeah. And that's why you got to practice it. Uh-huh. But those are easy workouts. They really are. I did it the other day with a tempo run. I did that 15, 10, 10, 5 long run you like, but I did it as an OCR tempo. How so? I did 15, 10, 5 at a local park and they have like seven baseball diamonds. And I went over each fence throughout it. So my goal was to keep at my threshold pace as long as possible, accelerate in, quick get over the fence and accelerate to the next one. So I had 14 fences per rep, but you had, I had to try to have, like, if you looked at my pace, I wanted you not to see any blips. So it's accelerate in and out in order to not have a deceleration. So that same kind of logic can happen and it's really easy to train.
1: Now I want to go back and look at your Strava, see if there's little blips in there.
0: I'm sure there's little blips, but I didn't want it to be like nose dives.
1: Yeah, I, I like that. Um, what else do we want to talk about with the surges? Anything else come to mind? I mean, tactically, if we're just gonna if we're just gonna give you the pointers there, other than the workouts, it is like anytime there's a, a sharp break or, or change in the terrain. Time to surge. Anytime you make a turn, whether you're visible or not, going back to your cross-country example of the uh <clears throat> the alumni going out and kicking butt, like any break in rhythm is your opportunity yeah. to surge. And it's it's death by a thousand cuts. If you're the one trying to break somebody, all those things add up. We talk about it all the time. Yes, your underlying fitness and your engine is still gonna lead the way with all of this, but strategically, like once a man or woman is broken in a race. And they feel like you are out of sight or you're just too far away to catch. Like, even though their fitness might be better than yours and you see it happen, you've already won that match. And that's, that's important. So corners, any places in the woods where nobody where you know no eyes are on you or when you're chasing somebody and your eyes aren't on them, they may be thinking the same thing. So it's your time to surge, to match a surge that you think they might be putting in as well.
0: It's a good way to reel people in. I think about that now, too. Your analogy of death by a thousand cuts is is the important part here. These aren't surges designed to break someone in one single surge. Correct. It's designed to steal seconds. I'm stealing a second here. I'm going to steal a second there. I'm going to steal a second. And you understand that they're going to get right back up to you each time, but it's going to start costing them. And eventually it might take a little longer to catch back up on each surge. And then eventually, suddenly they might not be catching up anymore. And then you throw a double surge and they're gone. But it's not, it's not one of the moves you make to break away. It's the move you make in order to break away later. It's the long game. It's not a, it's not a in the moment. I accelerate past. I've got all your energy and I'm gone. It's, I want you to accelerate back up. Like if you do it correctly, they don't notice that you're making a move. They think they did something wrong and they quick correct and they catch back up you shouldn't look like you're doing anything crazy. They should feel like they're doing something wrong, so they start overworking. It's second Mm -hmm. half, it comes back to pay.
1: Yeah, the only time really like the one big move where like, hey, I am am all in now. I mean, you'll see them once in a while, don't get me wrong, earlier mid-race, but it's usually when you're like, I got like five minutes left in this race and it's time to create a gap that I intend to keep. But mid-race, I think that's where a lot of those, that's one thing that I wish got a little more highlighted on any of the coverage of of our sport is those little nuances that you never see back in the woods or where the camera people aren't and all of those things those little that chess match that goes on that the top end elites are always playing that you never really get to see
0: and those are the fun ones and they're full of surges there's one race that was highlighted in a in a coverage that you can watch this. And are you thinking of the same one I'm thinking of where you watched a masterclass of strategy? I don't know. I don't know. What are you thinking of? When Atkins won Jacksonville two years ago. Oh, I wasn't thinking that off the top of my head, but I do okay. agree with that. It's the only race that had enough coverage the whole time that you got to watch him play in and out of everything and see these little like yo-yos happen where in the beginning he surged ahead and VJ and Kempson like panic caught up too quick and they caught him and passed him. And then he did it again, and then they caught him and passed him. They did it again, and then they just caught him and stayed. And they did it again, and then they didn't quite catch him. And then by the end, he's running free.
1: his uh, I don't know if you remember his bat last big surge was into the bucket carry. He all out sprinted in the last 20 meters to get in front of, I believe, Kempson yep. to cut him off because the bucket carry was narrow. And he knew, hey, if I get in front of him, no way he's going to get around me. And if I stay behind him, I'm going to get blocked and won't be able to use my carry ability. So I remember even down to that point, a strategic surge like that into a carry where he knew it was bottlenecked.
0: Um, That was a, he was moving some chess pieces that day. He was. And Kempson said afterwards, I surged, I think it was going into or out of the spear. He said, I caught him and he just went right with me. And that was like the turning point of the energy of the race where I was catching him and surging past him. And now I surged to catch him he went right with me and I started hurting and then he moved away into the bucket or whatever it was. And mm-hmm. that was the death by six or seven cuts that day. They yep. overreacted to the first two cuts and then they couldn't react to the sixth and seventh. Mm-hmm. Anything else? For surges? No, I, I like it. And, and this is one you can be creative with. You can do a million self created workouts with surges. It's just anything where you work extra hard for a, a blip in the middle of a rep or a workout.
1: Yeah, but I think the key there is, like, when we're talking about changing gears, you know, you could do, like, a fartlek style. Like, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to surge for 30 seconds every minute, but my minute is easy in between those surges. And maybe that changes, it teaches you to shift gears, but it's talking about shifting gears when you're already working hard.
0: Yeah, it's from hard to extra hard.
1: Hard to overextending yourself slightly. Not, like, hard to easy fartlek style, which... Uh, meaning like hard and then easy. It means like hard and then too hard and then back to hard. Yeah, Like those styles,
0: I think, just to clarify. You know, my favorite one is, and it's it's probably the least one of these, is that 30-30 advanced version sure. uphill. And you and I did that at uh, Granite Peak that one day, where it's 30 seconds at threshold, 30 seconds above threshold, repeated. So you recover down to basically your race effort that you're going to use in a longer race since most trail races aren't under an hour. You're running trail, you're running race effort, and then you surge above it, but it's equal time, 30, 30, 30, 30. And you can't keep it for long, but Albin uses that one. Lindsay talked about using that one. She got it from Ryan who got it from John. A lot of people like using those 30, 30 uphill surges. Mm-hmm. We followed that workout up. It was about seven minutes to the top. And
1: as soon as we Whoa. hit the top, we turned right around at all-out race effort to the bottom. That was a brutal one.
0: And that smoked us. That set the tone for the whole rest of the day.
1: That sure did. Yeah. That was sort of like a front-end loaded quality long run where we uh, smoked
0: ourselves and then still had two hours left. Yeah. <laughs> and those are those big days. We're talking about swinging the hammer hard. That was swung and we didn't do anything for a while after. Yeah, I worked though. Um, moving up from surges. Yeah. So now I'd say this is the tightening the screw style workout where the, the race cuts down. It gets tougher and tougher and tougher. And this is the one that Hunter McIntyre loves. He does a lot of his interval work like this. He does a lot of 800 meter, like six to eight by 800, where each one gets progressively faster. And there's not really a whole lot you have to say about this other than you start at an acceptably fast pace and you get faster throughout the workout. You may start a little, like if you wanted to average three minutes for your 800s, you might start them at three tens and finish up at two fifties. And you just get in the habit of cutting down throughout and finishing your race harder than you started. But without big surges, you're cutting down, like taking steps down incrementally each time where each rep, you get a little more tired and you're working a little harder.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the big mistake people make with that one, I have a few athletes who've made it recently who who tend to go out too hot in workouts and then they basically ruin the rest of their workout. So the goal has been, let's go out conservative and finish the workout feeling good. Well, the mistake that's made is that, that people will go out too easy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Let's say their goal was to average three minutes for an 800. Well, they go 330 and then 320 and then 310 and then 255 and then 240. And then it's over. And i like, you got a, you've got a 50 second spread in your 800 meter repeats, which then is too much. That's not going to simulate anything either, because you're never going to, I can't imagine in a highly contested race or something where you're racing hard, you're never going to tighten the screws that significantly. So I think the key, what you said is starting at a reasonably fast and respectable pace, even if tightening the screw means a second faster, seeing that trend go the right direction. But um, people sometimes err too much on the side of caution with that one, when they're learning their bodies anyways. So something to be conscious
0: of. One of the reasons this is so effective is not just for strategic races where someone is cranking it down. It's that in the second half of most races, you have to raise your effort level up just to not slow down. Right. And in training, when you're getting rest in between reps, like let's say again, back to, let's say five by mile, you're getting two to three minutes rest. And so you get to regenerate a bit, but in a race, you don't get that. And so it's not the same as in practice. I hit the same time. I got more tired, but I also got some rest. The way to counteract that in a race is to get each rep faster. So even though you take a little bit of rest, you get punished right back with, if you're going six minute, 550, 545, 540, that's a little harder than going 650, 650, 650, 650. Oh, yeah, for sure. It gets you ready for that race feeling of the pack still staying together, but it's hurting me more and more and more just to hold on. So now it's like I'm almost surging to keep from slowing. And that, that cut down, in Hunter talks about he's like, you've got to be able to, especially in OCR and in trails with hills, you have to be able to put out more effort in the second half of your race just to avoid slowing. Yeah, which is the case with most races,
1: really. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also like the simple, you'll see me do it. Most of my workouts are in that that fashion, um, but uh, to tempo run cut down, yeah, very simple. The, the extended efforts, which a race is going to end up being, where you, you look to take something even simple, five seconds off a mile. You start at seven-minute pace. You go 6.55, 6.50, 6.45, 6.40. And what I use on my my watch, my function, is I always just have my lap function up. And it will tell you exactly the pace you're tracking at. If you look back at some of my tempo cutdowns, I mean, they make beautiful graphs because Mm. I have it up and I know exactly where. And if I'm a little fast, I'll slow down a little bit. And if I'm a little slow, I'll speed up a little bit and I just click them and click them. And pretty soon uh, you've taken 20 seconds off your mile pace over a course of a few miles and it's done completely strategically. And if, if you can do that and have control over your effort and body while doing that, um, it's a pretty powerful thing. So playing around with that stuff is is important. And using that lap function on your watch displayed instead of the total time, that lap function will tell you exactly what you're tracking on
0: that current mile. It's very helpful. It is. Yeah. Tell so you that a lot. I don't have much more to say on this topic because it's really, really easy. Mm-hmm. Cut, cut down each rep, but don't make huge steps. You go down one step at a time. Do you think in those workouts, if you're cutting down and then you realize, uh-oh,
1: I don't think I can cut down anymore. I think I, now I'm going to go backwards. Uh, you overdid it. Is that the time to pull the plug or then do you just sit in it and accept it?
0: I try to cut and hold. Cut and hold. Yeah. Because I mean, if you're doing this for a race experience, you got to suck it up and figure out what happens. Yeah, and that's true. That's, that's why you test it out <laughs> rather than on race day. And then the next time you dial it in a little better and you cut down a little bit more responsibly, but yeah, I I cut and hold. I think, I think you sometimes just have to, t- to take your medicine. And that's one of those days I like to take the. Me- I don't like to, but I try to force myself to take that medicine that I, that I earned. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Last one really is, is the fast finish. Yeah. We don't see it in OCR a lot, but you see it constantly in track, road, and a little less in trail races, but it's still there where people are racing together until they're not. Yeah. Yeah, Because the pack's powerful. You want to stay packed up as long as possible in order to run well. But at some point, it switches from we're trying to run well to we're trying to bury each other. And that is really two components, right? It's fitness and speed and it's toughness. Mm -hmm. Guts. Guts, guts, guts. And it has to, part of it's innate and part of it has to be learned. Where you're There's, there comes a point in each race where you can't run that stride any longer, but you still can accelerate. It doesn't make any sense, but like, I'm going to crack or I got to take off. And you don't know that second option exists until you've tried it. And that's where those workouts you talked about that 1100 meter workout where you do 800 at race pace, 300 to the well, Mm -hmm. and then do it again and then do it again. Those workouts teach you to close it down. What do you think about, um, just
1: like in general kicking home on, uh, any, any workout all out sprinting your last hundred meters of your quarter mile repeats or any of that, like racing yourself to the, on the last rep of every,
0: every workout. How do you feel about that? you know, the, the responsible mind in me says, don't use it in workouts And the emotional side to me says like, sometimes you got to keep that Mustang a little bit wild. Mm. You don't want to, you don't want to turn it into a stable horse too soon. You want it to be able to do both. And sometimes you got to let it rip. So I think having a session where I'm hitting my splits today, but having a session where today is a skill day and it's a grit day and we're ripping it up to finish. Got to have them in there. Otherwise, like if you don't use it, you lose it. Right. But you have to have, I mean, you have to have the
1: biomechanical efficiency and the turnover to run fast, like to to be familiar with that sort of running. But in a race, you're only hitting it already when you don't even think you have more to give and suddenly you hit a pace that you didn't even know you were capable of. So like, I I would say training that stimulus in an already fatigued state is super, super important. I mean, strides after a run are going to help you again with fluidity, but it's not going to simulate when you already have lactate buildup over your eyeballs <laughs> and somehow you're still able to kick. Yeah. So argue, I would argue that once in a while doing that once in a while on even like a tempo run or something, I will kick home the last quarter mile, like unnecessarily race effort all out pretend somebody's on my shoulder. And it may have been a very controlled effort up to that point.
0: Um, so I don't know. I think sometimes that can help. It is. And it's not about who's the fastest at the end of the race. It's who's fastest in their current state. And part of that, again, is biomechanics and fitness and toughness. But part of it is having been there before and knowing how to keep your stride in line when you're smoked. You see a lot of people with pretty running form and they get really tired and they try to sprint and it's all goobble gobble. (laughs) It's just all over the place. And there is a actual skill to keeping your arms pumping front back and keeping your chest from starting to get pushed back over your butt and, and really arching back and your feet starting to flick forward and knees starting to bow out. Like there are telltale signs of kicking poorly. And there are people that pull their sprint form together when they kick. And that's by practice.
1: Hmm. I will argue that um, in that regard, I think short, spicy hill reps can be one of these secret secret sauces Ooh. to that. Like a um, if you have a scenario in which you can run flat for, let's say, I'm going to run a 400 meter ish rep, but the last hundred meters of that is up a hill, a steep hill, and then you stop, recover down all of that, forcing yourself to do something like that. Um, I think it's like a little bit, I have played around with that and we've done some workouts flat to climb with some descending, but, but that, that hill running when you're fatigued is speed work in disguise. And if you can dig into that after running flat or tired, sometimes that can be a good way to simulate. Like, a I I have to give extra effort towards the end of this rep because the terrain requires it. And that's a way of kind of tricking your, your body as well.
0: I like that a lot. I also think that sometimes we get confused on what closing down a race looks like because we watch these pro races and the college races. And because everyone's so evenly matched, there's 12 people together with 150 meters to go and someone pulls away and wins by a ton, but it's really only, you know, 15 hundredths of a second, but it's the gap appears big because everything else is so close. But in reality, most races are decided 800 meters from the finish line rather than 80 meters from the finish line in the real world with with mortals because someone cracks before then. And so the the second style of training for this are the fast finish workouts. You know, sprinting at the end of a race is great if you're still together, but most of the time you can drop or get dropped before you even get to the final finishing straight. And that's where those fast finish workouts are huge. You know, we talked about the dog loop where you work for 40 minutes hard and then finish with a hard two mile or a hard mile. That's the kind of stuff you can't fake when you can start going from a mile out or from 800 meters out. Most people, they crack at that point and you don't even have to worry about luck of the draw and a kick at the end of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you, uh, and you employed those, um, within like a fast start as well to simulate both ends, which I really liked. It's like, let's go out too hot kind of it's going to suck the middle part of this workout and then let's finish hard and that that workout requires quite a bit of grit if you ask me like to stay mentally engaged and what does a a race require well a good bit of grit and staying mentally engaged so and even if you train yourself even if you do you you drop the hammer on every single time you go do a last rep i'm thinking your body might just start adjusting to the fact that hey i know the end is near and it's Mm -hmm. the body that is told and the body has been told to kick home and I'm going to kick home. So I think that one's pretty applicable to no matter what race type you're doing.
0: I really like doing threshold finishers too. Okay. It doesn't seem like a fast finish. Let's say you're doing an OCR workout. Let's say OCR 400s, three rounds of 400 meters with reps in between. You get to the end, you're pretty smoked. Now you got to go to a 10 minute tempo right after. Not Mm. crazy fast, but to be able to sit back in hurt when you're already fatigued. If you can do that and mentally get up for those workouts, you can kick from two miles out in a race or 10 minutes. You can get to 10 minutes to go and be like, mile and a quarter, mile and a half left. I know I can tighten it from here. And so again, it's not necessarily a speed finish, but it's a hard finish. Right, right. And they're not super damaging. One 10 minute rep at the end of a workout and you're not crazy anaerobic in it. It's not going to set your recovery back anymore, but it's a game changer in terms of what you can do with one mile to go on the, on the clock. Sure. I've never done that style of workout. I dread it. My brother, he's the master of getting into shape quick and racing off of terrible fitness. And one of the things he forced himself to do all these years that I've known him that we used to, to live together and he'd come out and he'd make podiums with the worst fitness there is he'd two or three times a week at the end of a short little session, he'd do a two-mile tempo or a 10-minute tempo on the treadmill. He'd say, I have to be able to do it, and he'd just put it on 530 pace and just hold it when he was tired. And it, it kind of made up for a lot of his volume, but he was always able to sit and hang on longer than he should in a race. And because he was a 152-800 runner as a sophomore, he's always able to outkick people at the end of a race. But it got him through that danger zone because I, – I and I attribute a lot of it to his his – 10 minute to two mile finishers on workouts.
1: Yeah. I like that actually. That'd be like, you're talking like he would hit uh 400 meter repeats. And then at the end of that, go out in tempo in a sense.
0: Yeah. Or yeah. he'd do a stadium sim workout. Like there was one we used to do. It was 60 seconds on 10 seconds of reps back and forth, back and forth, or 30, 10, 30, 10, 30, 10, just like 15 minutes of work. He'd finish his last rep, take a couple breaths, set it to 530 pace and just grind for 10 Mm, minutes. I like that. And I always dreaded it. And I found myself writing that down more and more that the the finishers that I dreaded are probably the reasons why I didn't want to close down a race when I got there.
1: Maybe I'll put them in my repertoire.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You can't fake 10 minutes at the end of a workout, but they pay off big time during a race. Hmm kind of reminds me of like climb finishers and stuff we do, but oh, in different, a yeah. different sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have we covered all our bases today? I think so. And what these all do, like you, you've said several times, and I've said once or twice, is that physically, could you maybe find better workouts to build your engine? Yeah, you could. But we're doing those workouts. These are inserted more and more as races get closer. And they're really skill work. They're mental and physical skill work. While still working on your engine, they're not going to make your engine worse, but if you've built it with great training, these are the kind of things that make you malleable during a race, flexible. You can respond to things that are going on around you because it's just not a surprise. Someone surges, you're like, oh, this is going to suck, but I've done this in training. Or it starts out slow and you think, oh, these last two miles are going to get spicy, but I've done that in training. Mm -hmm. All those styles, if you've done it before, you just know it's not anything new. I know how to react to this. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do it in training, then you should be able to do it in racing.
1: And I think, you know, you don't want to be surprised out on the race course. And that can really ease the mind if you know, hey, like I'm prepared for all of these scenarios. Those of you who struggle with like race anxiety or anything like that, sometimes just like knowing that you can combat or create situations in a race, uh, is very, it's like a nice, comfortable pillow to sleep on. And so Mm -hmm. just knowing all of those
0: aspects are are important for that reason alone. Exactly. The first time you get surprised by something, it's the unknown unknown. I didn't even know it existed. And so I didn't know how to prep for it. Yep. We told you what some of those unknowns are now prep for it. And then it doesn't surprise you on race day. Yeah. Done deal. Done deal. If If you had to predict right now, what American distance runners win medals at the Olympics? Fight a prick pro right now, M- male and female side, both. Yeah, things that you think are your closest to locks. That if you had to bet your money, who's getting a medal? I'm going to go back to uh, Centrowitz
1: in the 15. He yeah. slowed his season. He's, he, You know, it was his, his first, I believe his first 1500 of the season was the Olympic Trials. Centrowitz. Is that true? Yes, I believe the announcers had said it. This is his first 1,500 or second at most. Yeah. So he's coming into form late. He's going to peak at the right time. Centrowitz wasn't looking at the trials. He was looking at the Olympics. And so I think Centrowitz is even going to come more into form. So I'm going to say Centrowitz. Okay. Um, For starters, that one comes to mind first. How okay. about you? I think Emma Coburn. In the steeple?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could go one, two, or we could go two, three or two, four, but I think Emma Coburn in the steeple, it's outrageous to say, but we have a chance to sweep the 800 female. It won't happen, but I think we put two in the top four in the 800 for the women. That's what I'm going to say. Two in the top four, which means at least one is in the medals.
1: That'd be incredible. I don't think we're putting anybody in the 800, unfortunately. For the men? For the men. I do. Who do you think? I think Murphy again. You think Murphy's going to just pull it together in the right amount of time and go do it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. He took silver in the last one when he was the fresh-faced coming-out-of-college kid. And now he's doing the central He's rounding into form. He ran the world lead at trials, which actually just got broke by a European But he has the experience to get through the rounds. Getting through the rounds at the Olympics is a nightmare if you've never done it before. You have the Olympic Village with all the allures of the Olympic Village. And you have to get through multiple rounds on the biggest stage you've ever been on in a foreign country, probably not sleeping well. So I think Murphy gets an 800 meter record. I mean, not record, um, medal. And I don't see us getting a medal above the 3K steeple. Five k, ten k. I just don't see it happening, or marathon.
1: Me either. We have great kickers, but the problem is, is that I believe the Africans are going to run the legs out of our kickers, and and they're going to be too far out of the game to kick home. If for some reason they sneak through to the finals, and if for some reason it's a slow and tactical final, and it stays that way long enough, I think that's our only chance in the five and ten k,
0: both male and female sides. And even then, I think we're talking about the difference in closing in fifty four and the closing in fifty one. God, I, I I would love it. It would nothing would make me happier as a U.S. based distance runner and, and running fan to, to see it. But we're still not there. I think the exception is Galen Rupp in the marathon. Part of me just feels he pulls it off again.
1: Yeah, well, Galen Rupp wasn't supposed to podium in the ten thousand. How many years ago or five thousand? What was it? The or
0: the marathon last cycle.
1: Yeah. So. Uh, you know, it was it's just as unlikely for an American to end
0: up on the podium then and Galen Rupp did it twice. Yeah. If if there's one person who will who will cage their way onto it just by being old man cagey, Galen Rupp in the marathon, I, I have hopes for. Old man cagey at like what, thirty five? <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. We're gonna see it play out in not too long. We only got what, month, month and a half so the Olympics start? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'll be glued to my TV then. This couldn't happen at a better time. NCAAs and trials now have revamped my my workout bank of videos to watch to get me through. There's only so many times I can watch the last cycle. I know all <laughs> the races by heart. <laughs>
1: There's only so many times you can watch yourself run Spartan races on
0: the old NBC. No, uh... well, let's not. Get that right away. <laughs> it plays on a loop in a TV in my house. Does it? Nice. Every time we're eating breakfast, I'm like, see that kid's? <laughs> See that man there? I I somewhat believe you. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll send you the tape. You can loop it at your new lake house for all your all right. guests out on the patio. Thank you. A couple of weeks will be finished up, so get one over.
1: Hey, we got a shout out somebody by the way looking at your hat you're wearing. Yes, we do. Why don't you give the shout out? Mine has not come in yet, so I have nothing to shout out yet.
0: North Pier Brewery just sent out another round of the Running Public beer. And it arrived. I didn't know it was coming. And I got a notification via email that I had a package arriving and I could not figure out what it was. And then Braden came stumbling into the house carrying this heavy case. And it had running public beer and a brand new Boko hat that says North Pier Endurance on it. And Boko are my absolute favorite running hats. So thank you so much for the surprise care package. And I think you can shout out his most recent race result as well, right?
1: Yeah, Jay Fettig, man. Thanks. Uh, I did not get my beer and my hat yet, um, but I'm waiting anxiously. I, I saw it back and posted that. I got a little bit jealous a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, Jay Fettig, he, uh, he went 1-1-1 in the Montana Ultra Beast, an age group, and finished like, I don't know, sixth or so in the elite if he would have transferred
0: his time. So he's a, he's a good athlete too. I think uh, age group's a thing of the past, Jay. Not just a master brew craftsman, but uh. A high level ultra runner as well. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Shout out when I get my beer. You'll know it, Jay. Don't you worry. Thank you, Jay. Bye, guys.